So in our study of the basics, uh, I want to remind you that what we've done is we've gone to Romans chapter 3, and we've taken all the concepts that have to do with salvation and have to do with sin and redemption, and we've dumped it out on the table, and we're sorting through this to see what's in that box, because I think a lot of stuff has been collected uh, over the centuries in Romans 3, and then it's been passed on to us, and we're going to do a bit of sorting. I want to read that text one more time. In Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 21, Paul writes, But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting? It's excluded. Because of what law? The law that requires works? No, because of the law that requires faith. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too. Since there's only one God, who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith? Do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. And at that point, Paul transitions to a discussion of how the law fits into this. But it's that statement in verse 24. All are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Such an important verse, and so much is hanging on that. And this is where we see the notion of grace, which, which grace is rich and thick in the whole uh, text of Romans. Now, Grace, though, is a little too common a word for us, I think, uh, especially in the church context. If you want to add to your reading sometime and read somebody who truly makes us think, I'm going to recommend to you a fellow named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Uh, It's B-O-N-H-O-E-F-F-E-R. Bonhoeffer was a German uh, preacher, theologian. He he actually did his work during the time of Nazi Germany. And he, he opposed Hitler and the German church that believed that Nazism was God's will. And it cost him. It cost him his life. He went back to Germany to oppose that. And he was put to death in a concentration camp. Along the way, his writings survive. And in one of those, he talks about grace and how we've sort of sold this idea of cheap grace. That uh, a cheap grace is just sold like, you know, disposable. This is not his words, but this would be what we would understand. Sold like disposable goods, like like plastic uh, dinnerware. It's just thrown away. But it works, but it's thrown away. And Bonhoeffer argued for what he called in comparison costly grace. 
that it's a grace that has a price to it. It's a grace that has a value to it, and it costs something. And, and so one of his uh, uh, better-known works is The Cost of Discipleship, where he goes through the teaching of Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount, among others, and describes what that grace means and what the grace of God how it changes us and how it puts a, uh, a claim on us that ought to call us to live a very different life. One of the other misconceptions with grace is that grace is a very New Testament concept and that s- somewhere in the middle of history after God had a child, then he became very uh, grandparently and, and gracious and before that he was an angry Old Testament God. Nothing could be farther from the truth. That, that's a lie. So uh, when people argue that the Old Testament God is cranky and mean and, and uh, that it takes the death of Jesus to turn, it, to turn him uh, to favor us, again, that's without any basis in Scripture. But you won't find the word grace very often in the Old Testament. Now, part of that, going back to our basics, remember our different lenses of reading the Bible one of which reminds us that, that the Old Testament comes to us from the original language Hebrew, and the New Testament comes to us in the language of the day, which was Greek. The words are different, and they might have a shade difference of meaning, but what we see translated in the Old Testament, which is the same word, is the word favor. So in the Old Testament, you're going to encounter often, it's trans, the word there that, that we would translate as grace in the New Testament is going to be favor. Um, you, you first encounter it in Genesis 6, 8, that where God is grieving over the wickedness in the world, Noah finds favor. Uh, now again, we, favor sounds like something that is earned, and this is why there's a difficulty understanding the two words. Uh, for those of you who want to know, the word in, in Hebrew is chain, uh, and the word in uh, Greek is charis. Okay, now, whatever good that does you. But understand, these are two different words from two different languages, but they have the same meaning. They would translate one another quite often. The favor of God is not earned. It's God's kindness. It's his grace. It's his disposition towards someone. That causes him to give them that favor. One of the reasons why this is um, maybe difficult for us to, to grasp sometimes is that we come from a culture and we live in a culture where we don't think of royalty. And we don't think of those who have status over us. In America, everyone's equal. We're very democratic. Um, we, uh, we all consider ourselves equal. And you earn your living by your work. So we have that Protestant work ethic that uh, we make our way by working in this world. But the cultures in, in the Old Testament and the New Testament times would have very much understood that there would be um, people who, who had to be very beneficent and they had, to, uh, they had to give favor. If you'll go back to your childhood and think about the stories that you heard as a child, the, the, the fairy tales, the legends... And there was always someone who would ride in, a, a king, somebody, who would declare that everything was okay. They would give a pardon. And we always loved it when this, when this uh, very 
uh, good, beneficent person would show up and solve everything. All right, that's the kind of thinking that runs through Scripture. And God is not just capricious, and, and, and he doesn't just make up his mind without, uh, without any sort of uh, uh, you know, expectation or any sort of um, understanding on our part. But God in and of himself is very beneficial. He's very kind. He's very beneficent, and so he wants to give his favor. The problem he runs into is that the sin and the corruption of the world very much disturbs him and grieves him. It hurts him, and he knows that it hurts us. So he has to work through that, but at the same time, he's trying to show and demonstrate that favor. The word favor shows up a lot in the Old Testament, and where I want to take you right now is in Exodus 33. Exodus 33, the dialogue between Moses and God, this may be our best Old Testament discussion of what grace looks like uh, as we encounter it even early, early in the Christian story, early, early in the biblical story. Uh, In Exodus 33, verse 7, now now this is at the very beginning where Moses has, has... has uh, led the people out of slavery in Egypt. God has shown his favor by keeping his promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's rescued the people from uh, their their tyranny under an evil king that treated them uh, like slaves. And now they've been free, but now they have to establish an identity. Now they have to become a people. Because their identity for generations, for centuries before this, is to be reduced to nothing to slaves, to the people who worked for Pharaoh in the empire. So here they are entering into this relationship with Moses as the mediator. And in verse 7 of uh, Exodus 33, Moses used to take a tent. He would pitch it outside the camp some distance away, and he called it the tent of meeting. And anyone inquiring of the Lord would go to the tent of meeting outside the camp. And whenever Moses went out to the tent, All the people rose up, they stood at the entrance of their tents, watching Moses until he entered the tent of meeting. As Moses went into the tent, the pillar of the cloud would come down and stay at the entrance, and while the Lord spoke with Moses, whenever the people saw the pillar of the cloud standing at the entrance to their tent, they all stood and worshipped, each at the entrance of their tent. Now get the picture, this isn't just some regular everyday thing where it's like, okay, it's time for this, we've got an established religion. This is very much in its newness, this relationship with God and his people. I mean, think of it. Everybody's just going to the door of their tent, and they're looking. They're like, Moses is going to the tent. He's going to talk to the Lord. The cloud's going to come down. This is going to happen. And everybody is amazed at what's going on here. And this this relationship with God and his people is growing. Whenever the people saw the pillar of the cloud standing at the entrance to the tent of meeting, they all stood and worshipped, each at the entrance of their own tent, And the Lord would speak to Moses face to face. Now that encounter with Moses and God is unique at this point. Moses is allowed to enter into God's presence. And the holiness of God. Moses is protected from it. Uh, Moses would speak to the Lord face to face as one speaks to a friend. That relationship with Moses and the Lord then becomes the, the, the prototype for all of God's people. And, and, and we're going to grow from that point to what we now experience in Jesus Christ, where God comes close to us 
instead of us having to go to a tent of meeting. Moses would return to the camp, but his young aide, Joshua, the son of Nun, did not leave the tent. And Moses said to the Lord, you've been telling me, lead these people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name, and you have found favor with me. If you're pleased with me, then teach me your ways so that I may know you and continue to find favor with you. There's the word, favor. Moses knows that whenever he encounters the Lord and meets with him face to face, he is experiencing God's grace. He is experiencing God's patience, God's forbearance, that God holds back on dealing with the sin that has corrupted humanity and even Moses. And God is showing grace to Moses that he allows him to be there. And Moses wants that to continue. He said, remember that this nation is your people. Moses is now interceding for his people and saying, this, this grace has to continue, God. If, we're gonna, if this is going to happen, if this salvation that you're working on through your people is going to happen. And he's essentially saying, I'm not going to last forever. Somebody else has to be able to experience this grace too. And so the Lord replied, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Then Moses said to him, if your presence does not go with us, then don't send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other peoples on the face of the earth? Then the Lord said to Moses, I'll do the very thing that you have asked because I am pleased with you, that's grace, and I know your name. And Moses said, now show me your glory. By the way, we'll get into this next time, <clears throat> but grace and glory are connected. That glory follows after grace. God's glory, and then that glory as it's transferred to us and how we give God glory. But again, we'll wait on that. The Lord said, I will cause all my goodness, all my brilliance, all my glory to pass in front of you. And I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. And I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. Now, I know you're already thinking, wait a second, Moses saw God face to face. No. He would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. It meant that he spoke to him in real time right then and there. The actual face of the Lord is something that Moses did not see. No one can see it and live. All right, but don't get hung up on that. Understand the relationship. Put it in the big picture of the relationship that's happening here. And that Moses is saying, we, we've got to be different. And if we've got to be different, we've got to show the world, Lord. We've got to show them that we know you, that you are pleased to be with us, that you are merciful and compassionate, which is all part of his grace. Okay. Uh, he says, you won't see my face because you cannot see my face for no one may see me and live. Then the Lord said, there's a place near me where you may stand on a rock. And when my glory passes by, I'll put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I've passed by. Then I'll remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. So there's still this hiddenness of God. Even at this time with Moses, there's this hiddenness of God where God is, is still mysterious and unknown to the people that he is gracious with. 
uh, chapter 34, we continue the story. The Lord said to Moses, chisel out two stone tablets like the first ones. <clears throat> Write on them the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Be ready in the morning, then come up to Mount Sinai. Present yourself to me there on top of the mountain. No one's to come with you or to be seen anywhere on the mountain. Not even in the flocks or herds may graze in front of the mountain. So Moses chiseled out two stone tablets like the first ones, and he went up to Mount Sinai early in the morning as the Lord had commanded him, and he carried the two stone tablets in his hands. And then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. This is grace. And this is God's name. He's describing who he is. His name is the Lord, but it's also all of this. Uh, he's compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Yes, he deals with wickedness, sin, and rebellion. And yes, it has generational effects. Now, it's not that God is holding people accountable. He's saying that the effects of that sin are going to continue on. They're going to have a ripple effect. And so God is dealing with this very seriously. And yet at the same time, he's showing favor. He's showing grace and compassion. Um, this then is God making covenant. And he's making covenant for one reason and one reason alone. He wants to. He's not required to. He doesn't have to. But he wants to save. And because he wants to save, he's going to do this. No one has... Uh, forced him to do it no one has tricked him into saving them no one has put a claim on him no one has stolen his magic trumpet or his talisman or his bag of tricks or anything like that God chooses to do this God is showing Moses this graciousness because it's just who God is now that balance between God's graciousness and compassion his being slow to anger and yet dealing justly and seriously with sin, demonstrates that God is a good God and also a fair God. Because if you don't have both of those, then God is really just sort of a, uh, a heavenly softy who doesn't care. And, and, and people who've been wronged, well, God just loves everybody and he's sort of like, he's sort of like Santa Claus. You know, you can always end up off of his naughty list if you do a good deed. But if God is harsh and not forgiving, then there's no hope. So you've got to balance both of those. All right, that message continues to ring out through the ages. Let's take, let's take one more stop in the, uh, in the Old Testament and look at Jeremiah uh, chapter 31. Jeremiah is one of the key prophets along with Isaiah and Ezekiel. And this is, uh, this, you know, this is from the time period when God's people find themselves in exile. Uh, they are remembering the story of who they are and, and the stories of Moses. They are, they, are, um, <clears throat> they are separated from the stories of Moses almost as much as we are separated from the stories of the first century. It's very much a part of who they are and it's very much a part of their memory, but um, it's still generations away from them. So they are rediscovering all this and what it means to be God's covenant people without all the extras that go along with that, like the land and the temple and the kingdom and so on and so forth, because they've ended up in exile. So here is Jeremiah 31, 
and uh, the Lord is, is speaking through Jeremiah of a new covenant. At that time, declares the Lord, I will be the God of all the families of Israel, and they will be my people. This is what the Lord says. The people who survive the sword will find favor in the wilderness. There's his grace, that favor. I will come to give rest to Israel. Now, this is very similar to the words that he spoke to Moses. He's saying that the people who make it through this exile will be just like Moses. They'll be the ones on whom my favor will rest. My grace will rest upon them. I will give them that peace. And the Lord appeared to us in the past saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have drawn you with unfailing kindness. I will build you up again, and you, virgin Israel, will be rebuilt. Again, you will take up your timbrels and go out to dance with the joyful. Again, you will plant vineyards on the hills of Samaria. The farmers will plant them and enjoy their fruit, and there will be a day when watchmen cry out on the hills of Ephraim, Come, let's go up to Zion, to the Lord our God. It's this vision of God's grace and favor that he's not always going to be angry, that their fortunes are going to change. If not for them, then for the generations in the future. But this is that covenant being fulfilled. The covenant, he's saying, despite their sin, despite their exile, that covenant has not been completely broken. All right, we move ahead to the New Testament. Now we have in Jesus Christ the revelation of God. As Hebrews says, now God has spoken to us through a son. This is unique in history. Not an angel, not a prophet. Uh, not even just through the, uh, the words on a page, but through the very Son of God. God has come to us face to face. And, we've, and as, as John says in 1 John, uh, that which we have seen, that which we have touched with our own hands, that which we have beheld, that which we've experienced, we pass on to you. It's the witness of God himself coming to us in human form so that we can relate to him. That's God. Why does he do that? That's God's grace. That's God's favor. Ephesians, uh, chapter 1 and chapter 2. Ephesians is, uh, other than Romans, Ephesians is Paul's description of grace that um, probably has the most impact and and sticks with us the most. Um, Ephesians 1-3 starts a prayer. This is all, uh, I think it's um, verse uh, 3... well, going on there, at least verse 10 and maybe even verse 14. Uh, this is a huge prayer, one huge prayer. And Paul says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. To the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reached their fulfillment to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. Now, This is not uh, stale doctrine. This is poetry. This is a prayer. And it is rich with this idea of grace. This is Paul's, uh, you know, if Paul is thinking of that name of God that is revealed to Moses, then this is Paul 
putting that into a poem where he's praising God for that. Because all those elements are there. God's loving kindness. He is, he is slow to anger. He is forgiving. He is compassionate, but he doesn't leave sin unpunished. It's all right in there in Ephesians 1. And, and, and especially when you see that word lavished. I wish we would use that word outside of church and scripture. There's just not enough use of that. Lavished is, because lavishing something is, uh, it's, it's, it's thick, it's sloppy, it's, uh, it's everywhere, it's, it's, over, it's, it's overdone, it's not sparing, it's lavish. This is the, the, the definition of lavishing, okay? I am one of those strange people that put peanut butter on pancakes, all right? And here's the thing, if you like peanut butter on your pancakes, you have to have, I haven't figured out the exact mathematical ratio, but you have to have at least five times as much syrup if you've got peanut butter on there than if you just put butter on a pancake. So when, when I get that, you know, at a cafe and I've got peanut butter on there and then they bring me a little old deal of syrup, that's not going to do. We can't be stingy with the syrup. We've got to overdo it on the syrup. Just bring it to us. Um, so, and, and the price of peanut butter and syrup are going up, and so this is, uh, and it has to be real syrup, none of this uh, corn syrup nonsense, but uh, you, you, you lavish it on there, you have to use it, okay, this is what he said, this is God with his grace, that he's not being stingy, there's enough of it to go around, he's pouring it out, and that, why does he do it? Because that's who he is. That's who God is. Now, again, this isn't to signify that he's just some, you know, uh, sloppy grandparent who's just, you know, smothering people in kisses and slobbering all over us and, oh, I love you, I love you, I love you. No, this is, this is God's irresistible grace, his overwhelming grace. And he'll go on from there to talk about how it makes a difference and it matters. It's not the cheap grace that Bonhoeffer talked about, but it is the costly grace. It's the meaningful grace. Uh, in take a look at Ephesians 2, 7 and 8. Let's go back to 6. And, and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. In other words, we, we don't get left where we're at. God loves us. He gives us grace. But then he also gives us an identity. He gives us a position. He lifts us up. How dare we go back to sin? You know, that, would be, that would be ludicrous. How, how dare we think that we're nothing or we put ourselves down or, or we, we debase ourselves. You've been lifted up. We've been raised up with Christ. We've been seated with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Wow, that's special. That's grace. In order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it's by grace... That you've been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It's the gift of God. Not by works so that no one can boast. For we're God's handiwork. Created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Which God prepared in advance for us to do. And that's grace. The good things that we do. Because God made us for that. That's grace. We have purpose. This is the undoing of sin. Just like Adam and Eve who had purpose in the garden. We have purpose because God has made us to do something. Uh, he has lifted us up. And it, but again, we, we, don't, we, we are simply 
unworthy servants doing our duty. We've been blessed by God, by his incomparable grace. Um, God's grace then is found. Where do you see it? How, what does it look like? Where is it? Well, it's everywhere. It's in the fact that he chose us in Ephesians 1, 3 through 6. And this isn't a lottery as if God says, okay, you're good and you're good and you're good, but not you, not you, not you. God, his intent has always been to call us out from sin and to call us out from wickedness. Okay, so he, the very fact that he's, that he's choosing us, that he is uh, for us, that's his grace. And that was in Ephesians 1, 3 through 6. Uh, God's grace is found in the message of the good news, the gospel, that God is saving us. That is good, and it's also news. That's Colossians 1, 5 and 6. God's grace is seen in the way that he justifies us. Not justifying us because we've done something to earn it. That wouldn't be grace. That would be what we're due. That would be what we've earned. But he justifies us simply because we trust in him. In 1 Peter 5, uh, Peter makes a statement that God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Now understand that that statement goes very much against the culture of Peter's time. That the person of status, the person of class, the person of the right birth, of noble birth, that would be the person that should be proud because they have made themselves and they have been blessed by fortune. Slaves, underlings, uh, women, those are the ones who have to be humble because that's their nature and their status. But Peter says, no, that's all turned upside down. It's the humble one that God gives grace to. He shows his favor to those who are humble before him, not those who are proud and trust in their own way. So it's when we trust in God that he actually gives us his grace. Now that flies in the face of, of uh, the thinking in Peter's time and probably in our time as well. Uh, you see grace in, uh, in the works that we do and the gifts that we have. All of those gifts, I mean, and by the way, gifts are called uh, signs of grace. Okay, if grace is charis, then the gifts are charismata. They're the, they're the manifestations of grace, that all of the things that we do, the gifts that we have. Paul says that his preaching, that's a grace that God gave to him. He says of the, um, of the people in Macedonia that their giving was a grace that God was doing through them. So when God is at work in us, that's his grace at work in us. Grace is also at work in us in enduring suffering. Which, by the way, points out, and this is very important, very important for us to remember and to tell our friends, that when we are suffering, it does not mean that God is displeased with us. That's a very important message. Now, it might be that our suffering is the result of sin and our own choices, and it might be that we're not going to be allowed to be comfortable because of that. But just because we're suffering does not automatically mean that God is against us. And yet you will encounter that thinking over and over and over again in this culture. Second, well, that's fine. You say, that's fine, Benjamin. You know, that's good. But, you know, I mean, you're just saying that because you're a nice guy, right? Well, no, I'm not a nice guy. And it's in 2 Corinthians 12, 9. 
where he tells Paul, you know, he, Paul is asking God, remove this thorn from my side, whatever that was. You know, we worry about well, what is the thorn in his side? You know what it is? It's suffering. That's what it is. Whatever it is, it's suffering. And Paul says, let this be over. And God says, mm, no, but my favor, my grace, my compassion and kindness, that'll be all that you need. That will be enough. And you can say sufficient, but how often do we use sufficient? God is telling him, you're going to make it, Paul, and all you're going to need, all you're going to need is my grace. That's 2 Corinthians 12, 9. So here is God showing us this grace. It's all around us. God's grace and favor and his intent and his kindness and his love. It's, it's doing a few things. It's going to redeem us and it's going to reconcile us to him. And it's going to uh, uh, result in glory for him and his glory showing through us. And we'll talk about that in the future. But God at the same time has to deal with guilt and, and the, uh, the, the breach of the law, breaking the law and, and disappointment and, and dishonor and unrighteousness. And, the, and the, how does he accomplish that? How does he take care of this uh, sin and guilt and dishonor over here on this side, this unrighteousness? And over here he shows grace and favor, intent, kindness and love. Does he just do this and this goes away? Well, it's, yes, but it involves much more than that. On our part, it, it's nothing that we can do to earn it, but it is us trusting, surrendering, forgiving. And you say, now wait a second, if God's grace really is unmerited, then why do we even have to do that? Simple. Because how, if if our confidence in ourselves to the point that we rule out God and don't trust him, if that's what continues to hurt us, then how can, how can God ever continue to show his grace to us when we keep cutting ourselves off of it? It's like that old joke, you know, the fellow goes to the doctor and says, Doctor, it hurts when I do this. And the doctor says, well, then quit doing that, okay? That's essentially what's going on here in its simplest form is that as long as we are so self-confident that we think we don't have to change then we have cut ourselves off from God's grace it's not that God's grace isn't there for us it's that we have rejected it we've called the work of the Holy Spirit something else and we don't accept it now I think most of us are interested in trusting in we know that we need to be forgiven. We know that we need to be made right. And we trust that God can do that. And we're, and we're eager to find out how and to see his grace at work in us. But the other key to this, the very important key, is what God does in Jesus Christ. That makes the difference. You and I have no response that we can make. I mean, we can't even really think about this too much until God accomplishes something very important in Jesus Christ. That's why if you go back to our text in Romans 3, he says God's grace through the redemption that was in Jesus Christ. And again, we'll save that for a next time. But what happens there is so important that now even the option 
of us being transformed by his grace becomes very real and accessible to us. So that's your basic for tonight. Uh, Grace is probably a lot more than we've ever bargained on. And uh, we should learn to just enjoy how it's lavished on us. And we should learn how deep and how rich and how good it is. No wonder it leads Paul and the other writers of the scripture to such praises. I also think that some measure of contemplating God's grace, I don't know that we'll ever understand it, but just contemplating it, that's going to improve our worship life. Worship isn't something that, sometimes we have this mechanical view of worship where if we do the right things and just pump a little more energy into it, then we get this output from the machine that looks like good worship. All we need is some measure of fathoming just a hint of God's grace, and we won't be we won't help but worship. I mean, it's going to be there. It's just you know the gratitude just going to pour out. Thank you for your attention. Uh, we are going to sing a song now. Uh, communion's been prepared, and you know why it's been prepared? Not just because people worked on it, but because God's grace invites you to His table. And uh, so if you want to partake of communion, that's in room 100 if you didn't have the chance already today. Let's stand, let's sing, and then we'll be dismissed in prayer.